Scripture this morning comes from Luke 1, uh, 26 through 38. Uh, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be born and will be called holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month of her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. That's a terrible noise. Sorry. (laughs) So we are entering into the season of Advent, and we just wrapped up a sermon series on uh, our elements of worship. Um, I really enjoyed it. It was really impactful for me. I hope it was for you as well. The season of Advent is not the season of Christmas. The season of Advent is waiting for Christmas. It's a period of of preparation. It's a period of fasting, though it doesn't really feel like it uh, in the the world and the culture that we are around. We fill our time, uh, we overwhelm our time even more, our schedules with more things to do, more things to make, and cookies to eat, and drinks to drink, and it's really a wonderful time. But as a part of the church, we use this time as a preparation for Jesus arrival. It's much more than a season of punching kind of tasteless uh, boxes full of chocolate, uh, and though I do love those. Uh, so we, uh, there are grown-up Advent calendars that we have uh, gone to this year as well, uh, but it's much more than that. A- Advent comes from the word Adventus, which either means arrival or coming, and it's both looking back at Jesus' arrival uh, in as uh, a baby in a manger in the first century, but it's also looking forward to his second coming and his arrival and fulfilling again the prophecies of who he has said he is and what he is doing, how he is at work redeeming this world. It's designed to lift our eyes up above the fray of this cultural hustle and bustle that we have in this season and to focus on what Jesus brings, hope and peace, and love, and joy. This morning we lit the candle of hope, and as we look at our passage this morning, it, we are reminded that it is hope is what we, are, what we need to be able to look above uh, sometimes the impossible schedule that we have, but also the impossible things that we face. One of the great quotes of Advent that I absolutely love, it's a little long, but it comes from a writer named Frederick Beekner. And he writes this about Advent. 
says the house lights go off and the footlights come on. Even the chattiest stop chattering as they wait in darkness for the curtain to rise. In the orchestra pit, the violin bows are poised. The conductor has raised the baton. In the silence of a midwinter dust, there is a far off in the deeps of it somewhere a sound so faint that for all you can tell, it may only be the sound of silence itself. You hold your breath to listen. You walk up the steps to the front door, the empty windows at either side of it telling you nothing or almost nothing. For a second, you catch a whiff in the air of some fragrance that reminds you of a place you've never been and a time you have no words for. You are aware of the beating of your heart. The extraordinary thing that is about to happen is only matched by the extraordinary moment just before it happens. Advent is the name of that moment. The Salvation Army, Santa Claus, clangs his bell. The sidewalks are so crowded you can hardly move. Exhaust fumes are the chief fragrance in the air, and everybody is as bundled up against any sense of what all the fuss is really about as they are bundled up against the wind chill factor. But if you concentrate just for an instant, far off in the deeps of yourself, somewhere you can feel the beating of your heart. For all its madness and lostness, not to mention your own, you can hear the world itself holding its breath. It almost feels impossible to feel that at this moment in time, in this particular season. There's a lot of impossible things that we face in this life. What are, the, what are impossible situations that you face? What are you facing in your life that seems impossible? Sleeping a full night, yes. <laughs> Says the new father. <laughs> Keeping a child on a sleep schedule, yes. It's amazing how much when you're a parent you just go, if I can just get some sleep. It seems impossible. Uh-huh, yes, that is probably impossible. Yes, absolutely. Balance seems impossible, definitely. I have about 18,000 words to write for a couple chapters for a doctorate I'm working on in the next two and a half weeks or so. That's like 1,000 words a day, give or take. (laughs) That seems rather impossible uh, to be able to do at this point. It's procrastination. I should have done it earlier, but here we are. Work feels impossible, finding it, keeping it, doing a good job, earning uh, our place. It is constantly measured. Uh, Finding the job that's going to provide for us as well, making ends meet if we're working two jobs, doing both of those things at the same time seems impossible. Family seems impossible. Raising kids, can we do it all? getting all the schedule to work out, being and relating to the families that we have, our families of origin, making sure that uh, the holidays don't have too much drama as a part of them often seems impossible. Figuring out uh, how to be a parent if you have to split your time with another parent. 
having enough finances. We're at the end of the year. Well, this also seems to be the time that we spend the most money. So we might be out of money, but then we're asked to spend more. seems impossible. Going through change, whether we're moving, whether we're looking for a new job, whether we're getting a new job, whether we're working on school, maybe it's our health. Maybe it's looking at the, the situation of people's health around us. It seems impossible that these circumstances would be able to work out for this person's good, for our good, and knowing what that is going to, uh, to what, how that's going to go to keep loved ones healthy, to be able to care for them in that. Maybe it's just managing relationships. Maybe you have a relationship that's difficult to, to uh, uh enter into that's impossible, whether it's somebody you work with, whether it's somebody in your own house, whether it's someone that you're going to run into in the next month or so. We often view things from our own angle, and we see them as impossible. We face a lot of impossible situations, and we judge these things to be impossible because we either see them as insignificant We see ourselves as unworthy to be able to make it through these situations, or we see the whole thing as incomprehensible. But the God that we worship, the God that we know, the one who has revealed himself personally and particularly in Jesus Christ, shows us that he is the God of the impossible. That is what our passage shows us this morning, is that he works in the insignificant he works despite our value and worth, being, being, uh, seeing ourselves as worthy, and he works in the incomprehensible as well. Look at verses 26 through 28 with me again. Gabriel shows up on the scene. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent to, from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. Nazareth was a know-nothing town. It was the Elizabeth, Colorado, if you will, of, of, of Galilee, of Israel. It was so insignificant that they couldn't just name the city. They had to name the county, the area that it was as well, Galilee. It was just kind of super off the beaten path. It's grown now. There's about 77,000 people that live there nowadays, but that wasn't that n- nobody knew about it until about the 15th century when um, kind of the, the um, Muslim conquerors kind of came in and started promoting it as a place of pilgrimage to be able to go to. And so um, it's actually very religiously diverse at this point uh, in its history. But at the time of Jesus, nobody knew about it. Joseph, uh, they say, was the line of David. This is nothing special. This is no particular special designation for who David or for who Joseph is and giving him any kind of significance. He was a carpenter in backwater town. 
compare this to John the Baptist's parents who we read about just before in the passage uh, before this in Luke. And we see Zechariah. Gabriel appears to Zechariah, who is a priest, who has gone in to perform his priestly duties to offer sacrifices and prayers and burn uh, incense at the altar of God in the temple in Jerusalem. We don't have to name anything else about these places. They are significant. We know where they are. Zechariah has a prominent public position. People were waiting for him to come out of the temple when the angel Gabriel appeared to him, and he took so long that they they knew that something significant had happened in there, even though Gabriel closed his mouth. The archangel of the Lord, Gabriel, visits Mary also. But no, nothing or no one is, is as insignificant, uh, excuse me, no one insignificant is remains unnamed. I'm not sure if I said that right. When someone is named in Scripture, they have significance. I'll say it, yeah, positively. That helps. All the double negatives and all the things. So We have uh, an angel that's named. We have a town and a country. Joseph and Mary are all named in these three verses, and Jesus a few verses later as well. Gabriel means God is my strength. Joseph means God will give. Mary can mean beloved. Nazareth can mean root, looking back at a root, a stump of Jesse being preserved for the new coming kingdom that God will create. Nothing named is insignificant. It's personal. We name things that are personal in our lives. We name our dogs. We name our kids. My daughter even names her stuffies. She names every single one of them, and she keeps them all straight. And I don't know how her brain works. I my main, my, na- my brain doesn't remember names very well, but she can go through the list of who her stuffies are, and she remembers the unicorn name and the wolf name and the other unicorn and the other unicorn and the other unicorn. She keeps all catalog of all the names of her stuffies. I want you to know that you are named before God. He knows you personally, he knows you intimately, and he longs to call you by your name. He knows the number of hairs on your head, he knows the problems you face, he knows the impossibilities that are set out before you. Like Gabriel's greeting, Mary, beloved of God, is direct and personal. God wants to speak to you in the impossible, in the insignificant. And so we bring our insignificant uh, impossibilities to him. We do that through prayer. We do that by bringing them to him, by trusting that when even though we think they are too small, God wants to prove himself faithful to us in the insignificant things so that he can then prove himself to us in the grander, significant, weighty impossibilities that face us as well. God longs for you to know that you are not insignificant to him. He knows your name, and he calls you by it. If that happens, when that happens, we also kind of count ourselves out by saying we are unworthy to bring our things before God, our concerns, our problems, our impossibilities. Look at verses 29 through 30 with me. 
But she, Mary, was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. First of all, there's an angel visiting Mary. Like, that's uh, weird. Uh, And this is breaking all, and she's incredibly troubled by this, and this is breaking all types of etiquette and social norms. A man would not talk to a single woman on the street, let alone in this private location where uh, he, uh, Gabriel appears to her, especially not a young woman who is betrothed to another man. Uh, this would not be norm. This would be incredibly frowned upon both uh, towards the man and the woman himself or herself. This announcement that she'll be with child, that she's unwed in this backwater town, would have been majorly would have had a major negative impact on her life as well. It would have been scandalous, even no one else would have believed this story. Joseph certainly didn't. Didn't in uh, Matthew's uh, telling of this story, he Joseph kind of says, "You know what? I'll quietly divorce her when this thing blows over." And we'll move along. Betrothal was all the had all the legal status of being married. They just didn't hadn't gone through the ceremony of a wedding yet, and they hadn't had conjugal relations. And so this absolutely would have marred Mary's social status. She would have been left alone by herself. But thankfully, an angel appears to Joseph as well and says, "I got this. God is with you in this." But Gabriel speaks nothing of what her worthiness is and instead highlights God's grace and mercy in this passage. In the very greeting that he gives her, the word kyrene is used, which is grace, a very typical uh, greeting that he is giving, but it is a form of grace that he's saying to her. When he calls married, O favored one, again, he's saying, you're one who God has placed his grace upon. And when he says the Lord is with you, this harkens back to Exodus 3, meaning when God revealed himself as the with you God to Moses. And in revealing himself to Moses right before the Exodus, he says, I see you, I hear you, and I know you. We are told of nothing of Mary's worth and value in this passage. We are only told of God's grace and his favor. Again, he says, you have found favor with God. You have found grace with God. He pours it out upon you over and over and over again. One commentator said, Mary is the recipient of God's unexpected, undeserved, and overwhelming grace. She is not the mother of grace, but the daughter of grace. I think one of the ultimate uh, graces spoken of in this passage is the phrase, the Lord is with you. Something that is can be deeply uh, scary, as Mary was afraid, um, and it can be deeply comforting and gracious to us as well. I don't think we're comfortable with grace. I don't think we're comfortable with grace because every other aspect of our life is something that has to be earned. We have to be worthy of it. We have to perform in school. We have to perform in our job. We have to uphold our marital vows to one another. We have to prove ourselves to be worthy to every other single person in our lives. But God says, no, I have grace for you. 
And we say, what do you want? And he says, I want you. I want to be with you. One of my favorite books is the book called With by Sky Jathani. And I read this a number of years ago, and it just completely transformed my understanding of how I approach God and how I have a relationship with him. One of the most used uh, uh, prolific um, prepositions that is used with God in Scripture is with. But he says, we go through our lives trying to live uh, and approach God by either to control him or to prove ourselves to him in four different other ways. We either do it under, over, from, or for. When under God, we live in strict adherence to the religious and moral codes that we find in Scripture. And so we say, if we just perform for him, he will keep us in his good grace. We can come to him with our problems, with our impossibilities. We can live over God by taking a very pragmatic approach and distill our relationship down to mere principles. What works for me and how can I control God and the outcome of our relationship. We live life from God. God exists as our divine butler, and we bring our requests to him, but not, not much else. We want to be distracted from the things of this life. Or, as a lot of times we live, we live for God. We say we are on mission for God. We're going to do great things for God. We're going to accomplish all these wonderful things for him in our lives and in the world, and yet our lives are still fraught with suffering and challenges and impossibilities. And we go, but we did all these things for you. Again, we're trying to live and control God uh, in our lives, proving ourselves to him and Sky says, instead of these four ways, we should be living our lives with God. Again, this is the most used preposition uh, of God in Scripture. A life lived with God is a life lived in relationship with Him. And suddenly, we see that we live a life full of grace. So we're not trying to perform. We're not trying to control Him. We're not trying to appease Him in who we are and what we're doing. We are living a life together with Him, knowing that we can live in relationship with Him. Uh, <laughs> there was a... Uh, somebody said something at Thanksgiving, uh, I think on, on Friday, actually. I was helping uh, smoke a brisket for my mother-in-law, and I, she said something, and I, my mind can go to inappropriate jokes at times, and so kind of try to suppress those and keep those down uh, around her, uh, particularly because uh, my mother-in-law doesn't get my jokes in particular, uh, but um, also just jokes in general. And I said, I got jokes, and I just left it at that, and kind of walked out, and she was like, what do you mean by that? And I was like, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> I'm not going to tell my joke here. I don't think it would be appropriate. And she's, well, I don't want any misunderstandings to be between us. You know, sometimes we have misunderstandings between us, and I don't want any misunderstandings. Sometimes you misunderstand something I say. Sometimes I misunderstand something you say. I said, I know. <laughs> I've experienced that with you. And uh, she's, so I don't want any misunderstandings to be between us. And I said, 
Well, Norma Jean, like we're going to have misunderstandings. Like those are just naturally going to occur being in relationship with one another. But it's what we do with those misunderstandings to be able to work through them, to arrive to an understanding of either I was telling a joke or I wasn't trying to be mean or you weren't trying to be mean or it wasn't an offhand comment. It was genuine. We do love each other. But that's what being in a relationship looks like, working to be able to understand and living our lives with one another. See, God knows that we are unworthy, that we are going to be challenged by his relationship with us, and that he is going to be challenged by our relationship with him. But in his good and perfect grace that he gives to us in Jesus, he says, I am here with you. Let's face this impossibility together. So our problems are not too insignificant. We are not unworthy to bring them to God but they can still be incomprehensible. Why is this thing happening? And how do I get through it? Look at verses 31 through 35. And behold, angel Gabriel continues, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. What's more incomprehensible? that Mary, a virgin, would bear a child through divine conception, or that this child would be called, would be the embodiment of all the divine promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. See, to, question, uh, to the question of Mary's virginity, Gabriel gives a double explanation. I don't think it fully fits in our logical modern minds, but at least there's an explanation for it. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. He's going to creation language here, um, hearkening back to Genesis 1, when the Spirit of God hovered over the earth. This is where God took nothing and made something the same that he does in Mary's womb and speaks it into existence. But the question of who this child be, he gives a five-fold response. He said, this child is going to be great. This is an unqualified and absolute statement of who this child is going to be. He says he's going to be the son of the Most High. He uses the word El uh, Elon, uh, which is the exclusive name for God, of majesty and supremacy above everything else. He said he's going to sit on the throne of David, which was a revelation of the messianic uh, hope that the people of Israel had and when God would send his Messiah to come back to be able to redeem his people. He says he will reign forever. This is an, an eternal reign as opposed to an earthly one. Herod and all our modern-day presidents all have an earthly reign, and here we're seeing that Jesus, God said, is going to reign forever. And he has a kingdom that will never end. Again, eternity. All five of these things are going to be, uh, are that which were ascribed only to God 
in the Old Testament are now being ascribed to Jesus. This would have signaled the full and complete redemption of Israel. See, overshadow was used both at creation, and it's used here, but it was used one other place. Uh, when the people, when it says that the Lord tabernacled with his people, when God delivered his people out of uh, slavery in Egypt and was with them and walking them through their wilderness years in the desert as they were going to the promised land, he built a tabernacle, tabernacle where he said he would come and dwell with him, and he dwelt with them. He would show his presence when he overshadowed the tabernacle, and there was a cloud that was over uh, this tent that they had. It signaled the presence of God with the Israelites as they wandered in the desert. At the tabernacle, God chose to locate himself in a particular time and space, and now he says he's doing that in a person, not in Mary, but in Jesus See, God is not only present in spirit, but he is present in the person of Jesus through a virgin. And this is wildly incomprehensible. I was facing a pretty impossible, incomprehensible situation in Atlanta. Uh, the last uh, few months that I was there, uh, it was a, <laughs> thanks, Brennan, uh, an incredibly challenging situation. And I was kind of in a catch-22 situation. Um, uh, very short story, I was having a lot of trouble uh, with my boss, and though I knew my time was ending there, it was still I was still being asked uh, to do some things that I thought, like, if I, I did, I performed a wedding, and then I was kind of um, chastised, to say it lightly, uh, about the content of what I preached and how I did the wedding, and then I had to preach a sermon. And I just felt like there was no way out, that I was going to get um, lambasted again, and possibly even it felt like my career was going to be coming to a close. And I was talking to a good friend and mentor on the phone and lamenting this, and I just said, it is an impossible situation. There is no way out. And I was sitting across the table from Michael, who was three and a half at the time, and he just looked up from his toys that he was playing with, and he said, there's always a way out, Dad. Just use the door. And it just broke up the weight and the intensity uh, with my focus on the problem, that it gave me a sense of perspective for me to know that I wasn't facing this problem alone, that I would be ultimately able to go through it, not avoid it, not go around it, but to be able to go through it and that God was with me in these difficult, seemingly impossible circumstances. We face some incre incredibly uh, incomprehensible circumstances uh, in this country. I think again of uh, the gun violence that we face and how we get through that, how we get um, some kind of control on this epidemic that we were facing so that we feel safe going to Walmart, of all places, to go to send our kids to school, uh, to be able to do our, our daily lives in a way where we know that God is with us, that he will be with us, and that we don't have to fear um, violence in that way. 
See, verse 37 says, Nothing is impossible with God. And this is a promise that Gabriel gives Mary. I believe that he gives to us as well. He doesn't say, Oh, I'm I'm not going to or I'm going to solve all your problems. Your social issues that you're going to face, the moral questions that you're going to have, um the conception issues, how this baby is going to be born, how you're going to figure it out, how you're going to do it. I'll explain all that to you. He said he doesn't give answers for those. But he says, "I am with you. Nothing is impossible with God." The challenge of impossible situations is it lacks hope. But in the Annunciation story, we are given hope. Our problems may seem insignificant, but so did Mary in an insignificant town, in an insignificant time, and as an insignificant person. Yet God visited her personally and directly. Our problems may seem unworthy to bring before God. We may feel unworthy in that, but God supplies grace upon grace upon grace. So it's not our worthiness, but his favor and presence with us that matters. Our problems may seem incomprehensible, but God conceived a child in a virgin womb, a child who was ascribed all the aspects of God, who God said, I am in him, Jesus, whose name means God saved. And Mary's response when Gabriel said these things to her, said, I am a servant of the Lord. And in doing so, she bound herself to God and said, you got to take me with you in this. You cannot let me go. This relationship will not end. May we bind ourselves to God and he give us hope found in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we long for this Advent season to be a one where we see your grace and mercy working in our lives, Lord. May we see what Jesus is doing in the impossible situations in our lives. May we come to you with them, deeming them significant, deeming ourselves worthy because of your grace, deeming ourselves whatever the last point is, whatever it was. comprehensible, that we would be able to see what you are doing in our lives and in the people around us. Give us grace that we can uh, extend grace to one another. We pray these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.